you'll all join me in prayer. Almighty Father, we come before you on your Sabbath day. We're so grateful that we can honor you with the praises of our lips and with the understanding that you give us that we might grow and prosper in your word. We pray that you'll be with us. We are so grateful that you protect us. We pray for those that have suffered loss, those through the pestilence or the tornadoes in Kentucky or the fires in Colorado, that you would protect your people. And we pray for those that have suffered loss, that uh, they might turn to you. We pray also for your guidance. We pray for those who are searching, those who need to know the word and are coming out to be a part of your family. So we thank you for those as well, and we pray that you'll continue to watch over us, keep us all safe as we continue on in these days of trial. And in Yasha's name we pray. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Yeah, we uh, glad to be back. We were in Texas last Sabbath, Marge and I, and visited with some brethren there, and I went to meet a couple of families, new families I'd never met before, and as I introduced myself, said, yeah, we know we watch you every Sabbath online. So the word is going out, brethren, and uh, we have the results, one sitting right here, and last week, two weeks, we had two baptisms, two ladies that traveled from both ends of the country to be here to get baptized, and hallelujah. The fourth book of the Bible, the book of Numbers, bridges the gap from the time Israel received the law at Sinai until they entered the promised land. Chronologically, Numbers begins where Exodus leaves off and takes us from there to the book of Joshua. What's interesting is the Old Testament book of Numbers parallels the New Testament book of Acts in many ways. Numbers details the walk of newly called out Israel from the sin of Egypt. The book of Acts shows the walk of the early assembly as they're called out by Yahshua the Messiah to a new walk. Both books show through many lessons how to live scripturally. They give us insight into the lives of various believers as well. They show the actions of apostates. Yahweh gives the good, the bad, and the ugly so that we have the whole, whole thing here in front of us. We can decide which way we want to go. Each teach important lessons through various incidences that occurred to believers. As with the New Testament book of Acts, of the apostles, you might call the book of Numbers, the Acts of Israel. Numbers are referred to many times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul called special attention to Numbers in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 to 12. The words, all these things happen to them for examples, are key. What Israel went through is a case study for us in our lives because many of the things that they did, the responses they had, are a lot like what we do. I want to talk about that today. It's not just a fascinating Bible story. The Israelites were people just like you and me. No matter how strong the enemy, no matter how tough the journey, no matter how difficult our struggles, with Yahweh's help, we can overcome. It's all about faith. Overcoming the sin of the world carries a promise, Revelation 2.26. And he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Now there's a promise you can live with. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, 
even as I received of my father. Now, these, of course, are words of Yahshua. And uh, he's explaining his role as well as ours. Truly, trusting in Yahweh means obeying him, even when we don't understand completely. And Yahweh punishes disobedience quite strongly. But even in judgment, he has mercy for the repentant and even for the ignorant who don't know. In Numbers 11, Israel was doing what people who are weak spiritually typically do when lacking creature comforts. They started complaining. But indications in verse 1 are that they were not just griping about their lot, their situation, their inconveniences. They were actually turning back in their hearts, turning back against Moses and against Yahweh. So Yahweh sent a rod of punishment, Numbers 11.1. And when the people complained, it displeased Yahweh, and Yahweh heard it. And his anger was kindled, and the fire of Yahweh burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. Yahweh says, I'll give you whiners your just desserts. These Israelites were consummate pessimists. I mean, I don't know if we'd be any different. I mean, as an average, the average person today, negativity runs counter to faith. Negativity is antithesis of faith. Pessimism is filled with don'ts and can'ts, and it'll never turn out all right anyway. And no use worrying about it. Poet Oscar Wilde wrote a tongue-in-cheek little thing. He says, always borrow money from a pessimist. He won't expect it back. So what was the problem this time? They weren't eating gourmet. They were living on mana, uh, called what's it in the Hebrew. What's it? They didn't even know what it was. What's it? And longing for the old days when they had garden vegetables, the leeks and the melons and the, the garlic and uh, all those things that grow close to the ground. That's where their heart was. So they added one more to their list of complaints. There once was a first-time visitor to the Feast of Tabernacles with YRM way, way back when we were just young and starting out. And he complained because we didn't have free food every day. Now, we were, <laughs> that would be difficult for us because we were, we were just getting started and we were hard-pressed for amenities. But this pessimist came for the wrong reasons. He expected not to serve, but to be served. In contrast, this last feast, we had a couple that came, and the minute their feet hit the ground here, they were serving. They were working. They hadn't even been baptized yet. They planned to do it at the feast, but they were busy serving the brethren, washing windows, helping the guys out, getting the grounds ready, constantly in motion. I was very impressed. If we can't give up some physical comforts and uh, usual conveniences and preferences to partake of the spiritual, then how can we be fit for the kingdom? How will we ever make the kingdom? If we constantly look back to the indulgences of the sin we came out of, grumble about not being able to do what we used to do because now it's against scripture, then how can we be fit for the kingdom? This is a big lesson in the book of Numbers. A key takeaway is that to rise above yourself and consider the why of the situation that you're complaining about. Israel's hearts were not aimed on the heavenly, but focused in the dirt. All these things that grow down close to the dirt, that's what they wanted. That's what their hearts lusted after. They don't want this mana every day. Can you imagine the nutrition in that? This is what 
sustained the Israelites day after day uh, in, uh, in their walk. It's got to be just full of nutrition because Yahweh made it. But they didn't want that. They wanted more. They couldn't stomach that pure bread of manna, which symbolized Yahshua, that gave them. They wanted a worldly delectable mixture. And so it is today. Many cannot accept the word as it is. For them, what Yahweh expects is too tough, too difficult, too demanding of them. I mean, to keep the Sabbath, the whole Sabbath, all day. Don't work. Focus on him. Once you finally get it, you look forward to the Sabbath. It's not a burden. It's a blessing. And the feast days, same way. uh, Look at how they had to enhance the food from heaven, the the manna in Numbers 11.8. They ground it up. They beat it into mortar. They baked it in pans and made cakes of it. If this doesn't sound like changing doctrine to suit your taste, I don't know what does. A metaphor for really not accepting what Yahweh gives us in purity, but having to change it. Don't accept what Yahweh gives us on faith and trusting in him. And then they complained they did not have meat. They wanted meat. They didn't want just this bread stuff. They wanted meat. Verse 14, Moses tells Yahweh, he can't, t- he can't do this anymore. He can't lead anymore. I, I can't handle this anymore. The volatility has reached critical mass. And Moses said, if it continues, Yahweh, just put me out of my misery. Frankly, I don't see how Moses survived as long as he did. With millions of people constantly complaining, constantly bringing their problems to him. All day long. I mean, all day long. He couldn't get out of his seat. Imagine camping with a couple million grumblers. It, it takes history's meekest man to get through that and still preserve his sanity. And there you are out in the wilderness, no comforts of home, even though they had zero comforts in Egypt, which they wanted to go back to. I mean, they were slaves in Egypt, remember? That's the irony of it. Humans have selective memory. They remember what they want to remember and forget what they don't want to remember. That's the way we are. You can see it now. It's too hot. It's too cold. We're afraid of those wild animals and the bugs and the snakes. Do something, Moses. I can't live this way. They needed faith in Yahweh is what they needed. There were many trials and problems in addition. We get just a minor taste of the inconvenience of living in temporary dwellings at tabernacles. Yeah, it's a little inconvenient. and We, we put a good face on it and then we're blessed by it, you know. We don't sit around going around grumbling and saying, I, I don't like this or that, and you're not this, I'm not happy here. And, you know, toughen up. Live with less. Adjust to the inconvenience. Your choice is either serve Yahweh or your belly. One has some advantages, the other has none. They wanted Moses to fix it all, make it all, all the tough stuff go away. Just, I want, I want the old way. You know, one complainer who lacks faith can. Cast a pall over the whole mass, kind of like leavening. And it always came back to Moses. Why don't you fix it? You don't do anything about everything. We're, we're going back to Egypt. We've had it. Standing before him daily is a long line of people stretching probably into the next county. Every day coming to Moses. My children don't obey me. My husband just ignores me day after day. My wife keeps a messy tent and never washes dirty diapers. She tries to open the flap and air it out, but then these 
stinging flies come in and scorpions walk in and this is just terrible. And the heat is going to kill us besides. In Exodus 17, 3 to 4, they dredge up another protest. And the people thirsted there for water. And they murmured again against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Now you're doing this to us. Their anger was starting to scare Moses. Moses cried unto Yahweh, says, What shall I do? They're about ready to stone me. Yahweh tested the Israelites to see what was in their faithless hearts. He realizes Moses can no longer handle it alone. So he has him ordain 70 men to help, to make decisions, and gave part of his spirit to each one of them so they could do that. They could figure out stuff and they can help them with the wisdom of Yahweh through his spirit. A lot of the issues and grumbling that incited Israel came from a mixed group of non-Israelites and Egyptians who left with them when they left Egypt. Non-Israelites. We read in Numbers 11.4 that this mixed multitude, the Bible calls rabble, who were with Israel in the wilderness had a strong craving for meat. So Yahweh sent quail for the Israelites. And as they ate, with the meat still in their teeth, he killed them. In verse 34, we read that it was these mixed multitude for the reason Yahweh killed them, killed them with plague. It was they who incited Israel's complaining. So that place was called Gibroth Hatavah, graves of lust, because they there were buried the people who had the craving, the rabble, helped push Israel continually, continually to sin through complaints. Isn't that usually how it goes? So in discord, which is one of the seven things that Yahweh hates in Proverbs 6. Well, lesson, don't let unbelievers with their lack of faith influence you to sin. This is especially true of young people. An unbeliever doesn't know Yahweh as we do. They don't understand. They don't give him the respect and obedience he commands. They're in the world. They live for the world. You know, they, they want to go, go for the gusto and they want to they have all these plans, worldly plans, what they want to do and be. And Don't be afraid to be different, young people and old people or any, any people. Walk away when you do, when they want to do illegal or immoral things. Just, just go away. Don't sacrifice your beliefs for someone who doesn't even care. One of our duties for the privilege of learning Yahweh's word is to set an example for others. And that's one of the things we do at the feast. We, we show others the truth. And we show it by how we live, how we act, in face of all sorts of different situations. And that's how Yahshua taught. He faced a lot of different situations. We can look to him. How did he deal with it? How did he get through it? Then we do the same. But you don't do that if you're timid about the truth. You can't do that if you're afraid of what the world thinks. Why should we care what the world thinks as it continues down a dead-end path? Why do we care? We care about the individual, but the world? Our duty is to show the right way. Be different. Stand out. Live for Yahweh. Praise Yahshua. Sadly, too many are just that. They're timid and they're fearful. They clam up when they should stand up and be counted as a witness of what they know. Instead, 
Yeah, they compromise their convictions or maintain them under the cover of darkness. If you're one of those faint-hearted believers, please take a lesson from the life of a man with a backbone. His name is Daniel. His is opposite the typical response to creature comforts that we just read about. The first chapter of Daniel introduces us to him as a young man, the Babylonian king that just just uh, following his first invasion of Judah and siege of Jerusalem, took hostages, young men, hostages, dozens of Jewish boys who were probably teenagers. Read Daniel 1.4, the king wanted children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science, and such as had the ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans are the Babylonians. Now, this is fascinating. Yahweh is doing the same with his called out ones today. He wants people without blemish. He wants people who have knowledge and wisdom and the word for his kingdom. Those who know his law and can administer it fairly. His law is going to be the constitution in the kingdom. Daniel 7.27 says, all will obey at that time. So what's wrong with now? What's wrong with getting a head start? Daniel and friends were so uh, privileged. They got instruction for privileged positions. So too with Yahweh's people. Privileged instruction for positions of privilege in the coming kingdom. Now, we don't especially just live for that. We live there. We live for Yahweh because he is our father and we love his him and his son, and want to live for them, too. But uh, there are perks, put it that way. Privilege instruction. We're in training for a position of priest, Revelation 5.10, and has made us unto our Elohim kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Not going to heaven. It's going to be right here on earth. Until Yash, Yahweh comes, Yahshua prepares the way for Yahweh, and then he eventually brings his rulership to this world. So The earth is going to be the center of the universe, basically, as far as uh, Yahweh goes. No wonder it takes effort. No wonder it takes overcoming trials. No wonder for something that great. Anything worthwhile doesn't come easy. So, it wasn't captivity that tested Daniel's integrity. It was privilege. Think about it. Royal privilege, education, the best food and drink, the most sought-after job in the kingdom. Who could have a problem with that? Uh, How about Daniel? The king ordered Ashpenaz to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, including mathematics, astronomy, natural history, agriculture, and architecture, Daniel 1.4. They were to eat the king's food and drink the king's drink. And after... Three years, they were to have a guaranteed position in the king's personal service. There's so many politicians that I know of who just jump at that, just die for that. Daniel didn't argue with the education or the training program and even a future in the king's court. I'm sure he wasn't thrilled with the name Belteshazzar, which was a Babylonian idol, but Daniel didn't have a problem. He, he drew the line where the scripture did. He did have that problem. He wouldn't eat the king's food or drink, the king's uh, delicacies. Why? 
Well, these enticing morsels that the king obviously lived on and delightful vintage wines, perks of the king's service, had been ritually dedicated to Babylonian idols, false gods. No doubt they included ham, shellfish, maybe snake. This is the stuff that they ate. And who, who knows what other slimy, slithery creatures the pagans loved to eat. Besides that, these people ate strangled meat and drank blood. Daniel would add none of it. He said he knew the word. He understood the commandments. His decision about food and drink was ultimately a choice about who he worshipped. And he couldn't, he couldn't accept anything else. So that's where we have to draw the line, where Yahweh's word takes us. That's where we worship. If the truth opposes worldly practice or custom, you align with the world, with the word. Some believers tend to favor uh, certain explanations of their faith when pressed to do so. But that wasn't how Daniel approached the opportunity to state his convictions. Think of the pressure he was under. The pressure to have be right up at the top of the kingdom of the Babylonians. And think of the temptation. Daniel could have approached the issue a number of more passive ways. You know, he could have thrown the king's food out the window when nobody was looking. Um, And sneaked other food from the kitchen. He could have made covert arrangements with some of the cooks, with the kitchen staff. He could have visited the Babylonian farmer's market got his own food, started a vegetable garden out back. He could have got around it a lot of different ways, but he approached the problem head on, head on. His method was to be upfront and direct. People respect openness and conviction. They really do. Even if they don't agree. He sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. He was respectful, but he was unyielding. That's courage and that's integrity. He was also teaching these Chaldeans by his own living example, the best way, by how he lived. They know you believe it if you live it that way, right? A good example is worth a thousand admonitions. But we teach mostly by our actions. And people notice. People are watching. They're always watching. We teach by what we do. Don't think that they don't watch you They evaluate you by what you do. Think about this. Daniel was in enemy territory at the very nerve center of an empire that just destroyed his homeland. And yet, we read in verse 9, Yahweh had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. Daniel 1.9. He proved the truth of Proverbs 16.7. When a man's ways are pleasing... When a man lives a life that's pleasing to Yahweh, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Don't compromise and forfeit Yahweh's protection. Stand firm in obedience and trust him. He'll take care of you. So Daniel did what was right and trusted Yahweh for the results, no matter what. Something the Israelites (laughs) sorely failed to do. He'll take care of you if you trust in him. It takes faith. Yahweh made Daniel to look healthier than all the other youths. Daniel 115. 
if it had turned out differently, Daniel would still have stood firm and had faith in Yahweh for guidance. And the believer must learn the word in order to keep the word and pass it on to the next generation as well. So get into the action. Be a teacher. The secret of teaching is that you must know what you teach. And that means you must know really well the subject you're teaching. You have to know it yourself. The best way to do that is to teach it. You want to learn something? Teach it. Boy, you, you'll get in line real quick with, uh, with the, uh, all of the ramifications of that which you're, uh, you're trying to teach because you have to know it. You might be questioned about it. I know there's ministers that say, uh, someone will ask them a biblical question. Well, we don't answer questions. We don't answer questions here. I mean, that's, has your, that's more than half your job. That's probably three-quarters of your job, but they're not going to do it. Probably because they get backed into a corner so quickly, they don't know what to say. However, not everybody knows the whole word, and we keep striving to learn. Knowledge is built one precept at a time, one teaching at a time. And that's the message of Isaiah 28, 9 to 10. Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. In Hebrew, it's zav lazav, zav lazav, kav lakav, kav lakav, zoer sham, zoer sham. And some scholars believe Isaiah is being mocked as speaking nonsense by those who refuse to listen. But you know, Yahweh's truth is holistic. The whole thing has to fit together in one solid message called the Bible. Everything has to mesh. Everything has to be part and not against anything else. A teaching has to harmonize. No taking a verse out of context. When the church started doing that is when they got into trouble. They started grabbing a verse, ignoring all the other verses around it, ignoring maybe the chapter it's in, and there we have false doctrine on its way. So learning comes in small bites. In school, you don't get the whole load all at once. You get a little bit each day. You build on it. Learning to read, you build on the alphabet, and then you learn to put words together and so forth, and sentences, and then you write them. And then, you know, everything, you get a little more, little more, starting with the basics and building on them. And that's how the walk is with a believer. But when it comes to the truth, he learns these things. He starts a, a strong believer then. A bonus to memory is teaching. They say, if you just hear a message without really concentrating, you will lose half of it within the first 15 minutes. But when you study and teach, it becomes imprinted on your brain. And memory has a lot to do with motivation. Teaching takes motivation. To the believing husband, teach your unbelieving wife. Believing wife, teach your unbelieving husband. You learn some new truth, share it. Teach your children. Children, teach your friends. Write a post or an email and share your understanding. Not necessarily promoting Facebook or Twitter, especially not Twitter, but um, I mean, we benefit by uh, electronic ministry, but uh, you got to be careful too, of course. It doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have to be profound wisdom. It might just get people to start thinking. All it takes, just a little word here or there. Little truth here or there. It's not going to return to you void. Yahweh promises that. 
All will benefit and faith will strengthen. We need to pass the truth on to the next generation. We live in a world that's coming apart at the seams and the only thing that's going to be true as solid as an anchor is Yahweh's truth. First, we need to be educated in his ways ourselves. And that is what we are doing here each Sabbath. Each time we open up the word, each time we have a Bible study, we learn from it. Ask yourself, am I learning, living, and teaching the word, or am I just drifting, thinking about what I'm going to do when it's over? Go out and spend some time doing something else. Yahweh wants strong believers. The prophets and patriarchs of the Bible, well, they weren't wimps. Let's face it. These guys were strong in their beliefs. Look at Jeremiah, what he went through, the weeping prophet. He wrote Lamentations, which means to cry. I mean, this guy was totally into it, and it really bothered him when people didn't listen, when the king wouldn't listen, when he got knocked down, trying to tell him something, they knocked him to the ground. He just kept going, got up and kept going. They spoke boldly, and they lived deliberately, and they they lived with conviction. Never forget, we're at war. Paul says in Ephesians 6.10, it's a spiritual battle. We are recruited by Yahweh when he calls us. When you come to Yahshua, you put on your armor. Put on the whole armor of Yahweh, it says. And you take your position at the front line. Fighting doesn't occur at the rear. Fighting occurs at the front. The front, not the rear. And take, you take your fair share of the difficulty when you join the front. Just like all the other soldiers on the front line. Every believer in Yahweh makes a stand and engages. This isn't just some cheap approach to salvation that asks that you come to Yahshua to have all your problems taken care of and all your wants met. He never promised that. He says, in this life, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome this world. You're not here for a life of prosperity on easy street. It's not about you, and it never was. It's about Yahweh and his word and teaching the world. You know, we've all said things that afterward we wish we could take back, words that cut or hurt and ultimately made us look like a fool. Like a bad disease, the best cure for loose lips is to avoid it to begin with. Pause before you fire a verbal volley. Think before you speak. Ask, what will be the consequences? Who's going to hear it? What will they think? Will it help or hurt? How will others respond and how will they see me? Are you considering everybody? Sometimes it, I remember a guy, when I talked to him, he'd always pause before he responded. Always paused, and they'd give the answer. It's a, what a child of Yahweh should do. Matthew twelve thirty six. By saying unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account of thereof of in the day of judgment. Idle word, said without much care or thought, just... Let it fly. Fire off an invective or just some critical comment, and it's recorded in heaven, believe it or not. On the flip side, we are all at times lacking in faith to do what needs to be done or what needs to be said. Is our faith strong enough? Will we stand before Yahshua guiltless when he said, what did you do when they asked you this? What did you do when they said this and knew it was wrong? Is our faith strong enough to take an unpopular stand because we're afraid of what others may think? 
Others are not going to stand with you before the judge. They're not going to be there. It'll be you and him. And don't be afraid to have people think, well, this guy, he's kind of different. I'm reminded of the story of the brave conductor. Two railroad tracks ran parallel with each other. One day, workmen were drawing the trunk of an enormous tree across the first track. Then the chain broke. The conductor knew that an express train on the other track was due and would soon be wrecked and many lives would be lost. He stopped his train, jumped off, ran ahead, waved his arms excitedly. His gesturing was so extreme, those who witnessed it thought he was a maniac. But this strange antics were enough to get the engineer of the express train to heed, to shut off the steam, put on the brakes, and stop his train directly in front of the great tree. As the conductor looked into the eyes of some of the grateful faces of those he had saved, it didn't matter then that most thought he must be a crazy man. Don't be bothered to be seen as different or odd because you call on your father's name and keep his laws. Someday they'll see it. Someday they'll say, you're right. You were right. Numbers 13, the account of Israel. Their initial probe into the promised land teaches lots of good lessons for us. One of the most powerful lessons of faith in the scripture. Numbers 13, Yahweh told Moses to send out 12 spies to spy out the land. We know the story. Check out the land of Canaan. Is it fertile? Can it grow crops? Are the people there, what are they like? Strong or weak? Are there few or many? What kind of cities, tents, or strongholds do they have? In verses 4 to 16 is a list of the spies. At the end of the list, I found something very unique. An odd notation. It reads, These are the names of the men which Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Oshia, the son of Nun, Joshua, or Yahshua. Why did Moses add a yod to Oshia's name to make Yahshua? Strong says Oshia is related to Yasha, 3467, meaning salvation or deliverer. So he was actually defining the name of this guy, what it meant. It's going to be a deliverer. We know that, of course, is what Yahshua is too, same name. Moses added the Yah family prefix to Oshia, making Yahshua. Maybe Moses used this form to express his purpose of delivering Israel from the evils of Canaan. Brown Dyer Briggs says it means to save, give width and breadth to, to liberate, to place in freedom, give victory to. So he's almost, it's almost a prophecy of what's going to happen. So after 40 days of spying the land, they found that the land produced wonderful crops and produce. And it can't be the same land I visited. because I think things have changed a lot since then. But uh, they, uh, they found it, you know, the land of milk and honey. I mean, what more do you want? They came back, came back with glowing reports and abundant richness. Verse 28, but there is a problem. And it's not a little problem. Worst case scenario, the people who live there are invincible. They're big people. They're giants. Verse 30, Caleb begins to disagree. We can take them. Don't worry. Don't worry. Now, you've got to remember all this in context, and we'll get to that in a minute. There's no way, the others say, lacking in faith. There's no way. 
I mean, they'd slaughter us like child's play. Remember, Yahweh is giving this land to Israel. Number one, it's a promise of Yahweh. They're saying we can't do it. What does that say about faith? Shouldn't be an issue with him, with them on, with him on their side. He gives this land, and do you really think he would have Israel slaughtered trying to take it? Total lack of faith. That's all it is. Do they trust Yahweh and have faith? 14, 1 to 4, it degenerated from a negative report. Oh, now we're crying all night to deciding to choose a leader to take them back to Egypt. We got to get out of here. This is crazy. That's the power of faithlessness. We can be negative Nellies or be positive and thereby show our faith. We have the choice. Being positive with Yahweh shows faith. It's all how you look at it. It's all how your heart works. A shoe salesman was sent to a remote part of a back country. When he arrived, he was disheartened because everyone went around barefooted. So he wired the company. No prospect for sales. People here don't wear shoes. A competitor, shoe salesman, went to the same place. He, too, immediately sent word to the home office. But his message read, great potential for sales. People here don't have shoes. Winston Churchill said a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. You know, in certain situations, sometimes it's only your faith that can save you. The believer gets stronger in faith when his faith is put to the test. To undergo personal tests is the perfect opportunity to grow spiritually. And that's why Yahweh gives us tests, not only to try us, but to strengthen our faith. And that answers the question, why do righteous suffer? You know, people say, well, if you're such a good guy, why do you suffer? Yahweh's testing faith. The Israelites were resolute. They didn't just say, you go your way and we'll go ours. They wanted blood. They wanted to kill Joshua and Caleb. Some may think it's a bit harsh for Yahweh to let them die in the wilderness after 40 years. But think about it. These people were hopeless. Giants. This is a, I believe this is a Hebrew hyperbole. It's an overstatement. And Hebrew has a lot of that. The language has a lot of overstating. They have very flowery language and they really uh, put a little juice <laughs> to their communication. And I think that's what this is. Uh, they could have been like, you know, uh, uh, David fighting Goliath, Goliath was nine foot tall. It could be. Could be. But uh, who knows? But how many proofs did they need to know that Yahweh was there with them? How many proofs? I mean, like dividing the Red Sea, a whole sea, and destroying the entire Egyptian army, the most powerful army in the world. Is that enough? Yahweh made the bitter water sweet at Marah, Exodus 15. He gave them manna. Forty years, Exodus 16. Took water from a rock, Exodus 17. The plague of fire when they complained, Numbers 11. 
bringing a whole flock of quail, probably millions, numbers 11. These miracles and proofs don't even take into account the 10 plagues on Egypt before leaving. Remember that? 10 plagues they had to, they had to, to witness to loosen Pharaoh's bond on them. They're shackled to, uh, as slaves. It was faith that was lacking the most in these people. It was lack of faith. They just didn't believe. And they had selective short memory. Yahweh has called us out in a similar way and given us promises peculiar to his saints. Do we have the faith to continue? Even when things kind of look bleak, maybe things like retrogressing or going, going backward, um, do we have the faith to continue? No matter what trial comes or obstacles we face, do we stand strong? It's a test. Yeah, it was testing. A lack of faith led to Israel's lack of bravery and reduced them to predictable, weak-kneed people who rely on reason rather than their faith. I've read this before years back, and I find it very uh, encouraging, I guess you'd say. One of the most decorated soldiers of World War I was a man named Sergeant Alvin York. He received the Medal of Honor for leading an attack with eight men who overcame 160 of the enemy who were using heavy machine guns from a fortified position. In fact, they made a movie about him back in the maybe 50s, 40s, I don't know. Uh, and we kept a Feast of Tabernacles just down the road from where this guy was born in Tennessee. And that's what spoke, uh, sparked my interest. It was the 8th of October, 1918, and another wet and foggy morning in the rugged Argonne Forest in France. One of the, on the sides of the valley were steep ridges manned by German machine guns and troops. As the Americans advanced, they encountered intense German machine gun fire from the left, from the right, and from the front. As York recalled, the Germans got us and they got us right smart. They just stopped us dead in our tracks. We couldn't tell for certain where the terrible heavy fire was coming from, and I'm telling you, they were shooting straight. The German fire took a heavy toll. Something had to be done to silence their guns. As his men remained under cover, guarding the prisoners, York worked his way into position. I'll have to say he was a, uh, he was a farm boy, and he was a sharpshooter. He had, you know, shot varmint, varmints uh, all, his, all his life. He's a great shot. I didn't have time to dodge behind a tree or dive into the brush. As soon as the machine guns opened fire on me, I began to exchange shots with them. There were over 30 of them in continuous action, and all I could do was touch the Germans off just as fast as I could. I was sharpshooting. I don't think I missed a shot. It was no time to miss. All the time I kept yelling at them, come down. I didn't want to kill any more than I had to, but it's either they or me. One of York's prisoners, First Lieutenant Volmer, emptied his pistol trying to hit York. Failing to injure York and seeing his mounted, mounting losses, he surrendered the entire unit to York and his men, his eight men. So they marched 132 German prisoners back to the American lines. He was promoted to sergeant and awarded the Medal of Honor. Three months later, Sergeant York and his division commander, General Lindsay, toured the site. York, how did you do it? Lindsay asked. York said, sir, it's not manpower. 
A higher power than man power guided and watched over me and told me what to do. And the general bowed his head and put his hand on my shoulder and solemnly said, York, you're right. York was to say there can be no doubt in the world of the fact of the divine power being in that. No other power under heaven could bring a man out of a place like that. When you have the Almighty behind you, you can come out on top every time. We were traveling in a winter snowstorm. Hey. <laughs> hey. Uh, after meeting on the Sabbath in Arkansas, in a city library, my family and I were going through the mountains of northern Arkansas heading for home on deep, slushy roads. I was driving one car, and Ryan was behind me in his car. He had a Mustang at that time, terrible in snow. <laughs> Coming down a mountain, we were negotiating a tight curve, and suddenly there was a Mercedes crossways in both lanes, and a guy standing out doing this, not wanting us to hit him. It's hard to stop on six inches of slushy snow on a curve coming down a mountain. And I remember my mind as quickly as I, I could, thinking, okay, I can hit his car or I can go over the edge of the mountain. What do I do? Quick prayer. I bet I missed him by this much. I wanted to help him get out and push his car, but we couldn't stop. You're on that much slushy snow down an incline, you know, like a 6% grade. You're, you're not going to stop. So we stayed on the road. Yahweh was with us. I have to believe it. There was no way. We missed him, but we did. Israel could not know the outcome of their battles with the inhabitants of Canaan. They didn't know. All they really had to go on was faith in Yahweh's promise. They needed a leader. They needed Moses to say, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. A dozen miracles were not enough for Israel. Opening up a seed to escape from an advancing Egyptian army wasn't enough miracle. From the time they left Egypt, their constant complaints boiled down to their lack of faith and their lack of comfort and the issues they have to put up with. 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, verse 1, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Messiah. They had Yahshua right there with them. Right there. That rock was Messiah. And he followed them. But with many of them, Yahweh was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. 14,700 at one time. And remember the, the three that rebelled against uh, Moses, wanted to lead the people back to Egypt. He opened up the earth and swallowed them and their families. Yahweh didn't put up with nonsense. He didn't put up with people who are trying to throw other people's faith. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. Neither be you idolaters. Worship idols as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. 
Neither let us tempt Messiah as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur you as some of them also murmured, complained. When they were complaining to Moses, they were complaining to Yahweh, obviously, because uh, Yahweh is the one that uh, brought them there. And, uh, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, all these things happen unto them for examples that they are written for our admonition, our learning, our benefit. Upon whom the ends of the world are come. Who's that? I believe that's us. I believe we're on the ones upon whom the ends of the world are coming. You know, brethren, this world is coming apart at the seams. And we all know it. It takes added faith to keep going. It takes a strong person in Yahweh. And it's going to take more faith later on when things really get hot. But we have an advantage. Others don't. We know the outcome. We read the last chapter of the book. We have Yahweh's promise to those who stay faithful. What more do we need? May Yahweh bless you.